welcome to the Unpacked Project. We're your hosts. I'm Noelle. And I'm Miranda. We're here to explore all things social justice. It's through casual conversations, interviews, and storytelling that we hope to inspire others to take action towards a more compassionate and equitable world. Because honestly, it kind of sucks here sometimes. (laughs) For real. We can do better, people. All right. Let's start unpacking. Samantha Owens is Regional Director for At Over Zero with the U.S. Branch. They're an organization that partners with community leaders, civil society, and researchers to harness the power of communication to prevent, resist, the rise above identity-based violence and other forms of group-targeted harm. She's an expert in leveraging strategic communication for social change with extensive experience working across various issue areas and contexts. She has led and managed communication campaigns to prevent extremism among youth in Bosnia, prevent youth homelessness in the United States, and has overseen art-based initiatives for conflict transformation globally. She holds a master's in human rights from University College London and a BA in religious studies and international studies from Northwestern University. Sam, thank you so much for being here today. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and really how you got into this work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That is a great question and it's, it's great to be here with you today. Um, I guess from a young age, I've always been interested in stories and um, in in particular, the stories we tell about, you know, um, other people and the stories we tell about how they're different, how they're like us. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, in my extended family, I had uh, quite a few family members who, um, you know, uh, struggled with homelessness, um, struggled with addiction, and I saw the way that society dehumanized them, um, and and really uh, the stories that were told about them that didn't match up with my experience. You know, recognizing their full humanity and and recognizing, um, you know, all the wonderful parts of them as well. So I guess from a young age, I've always been really interested in. Um, how we see other people and and the sort of mental gymnastics we do to justify, um, you know, why certain people um, are suffering or or you know why it's quote unquote okay to um, you know exclude certain people from from um, certain parts of life. So I guess if I'm if I'm going really deeply into the psychology of why I'm interested in this, I would say. Those really, that really is what sowed the seeds. Um, in terms of my studies, I uh, so originally I was I was uh, a scene kid. I was it was the early two thousands. I thought I was going to go into the music business. I was I was a little punk rocker. I wanted to you know um, work in the music industry somehow. Had an internship, hated it. Um, so then, you know, really got back to what I felt most passionate, most excited about. And that was, um, these stories about, about how we, uh, you know, talk about other people, how, how societies tell stories about people. Um, and that was the, uh, that was the impetus to study religious studies and international studies was, you know, what's the, what, what are the guiding principles that different societies have in terms of how they interact with each other in terms of how they interact with the world. Um, and then from there, um, I, you know, I, I went to London, I studied international human rights and, um, worked in homelessness. That was, that was what I was really passionate about realized that my interests, um, were a bit broader and, um, you know, I was really interested in things on an international scale. So, um, I, I worked on, uh, projects around the world, um, uh, was lucky enough to work in Sarajevo for a number of years. Um, and I really, you know, while I was in Sarajevo and actually before that, I really became kind of obsessed with this idea of the U.S. as a post-conflict society that had never really undergone any meaningful transformation. So what are the stories that we tell about that? What are the narratives that we tell about other people, um, you know, with, within the U.S. Um, as it relates to a post-conflict society that, that um, in my opinion, has never really healed? Yeah, and, you know, I think it's great having you on uh, at this point 
after some of the episodes that we've done. In season one, we talked a lot about bias and our own biases and kind of how those form. And in season two, we were able to start talking about how social media starts feeding those biases, um, how the narratives that are created on social media, in the news, um, just all within our society are, you know, creating these situations where people aren't able to identify what's true, what's misinformation, um, and just kind of navigating all of that. And as a society, like you said, not really healing from our history. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, where are we today in the stories that we tell about different communities, um, especially our marginalized communities. So thank you so much for being here to start digging a little deeper into this topic with us. Um, Over Zero has a lot on their website, so many resources. Um, there was a guide titled Counteracting Dangerous Narratives During Times of Uncertainty. And it was discussed that certain patterns of speech have played a large part in hate crimes and identity-based violence within our society at various points in time. Uh, and in fact, it's discussed that these patterns actually increase people's acceptance of discriminatory policies and even violence. So can you just explain for our listeners a little bit um, about what hate speech is, what is dangerous speech, and what are the differences between them? Yeah, absolutely. So many of us are familiar with the term hate speech, which um, it refers mostly to the intent behind the speech. So uh, this is speech, you know, that's targeting another group with vitriol because of their identity, because the speaker or the, the speakers feel a negative way about um, a said group because of their identity. When we're looking at the role of communication, when we're looking, you know, at the stories we tell in conflict and identity-based violence, um, it can often be more useful to look at the impact of speech, though, uh, specifically the likelihood of uh, a piece of speech in in question that, you know, will it support, uh, will it increase support for, or will it drive people to commit violence or other harms? So what's the, what's the real world impact? And that's where the term, um, dangerous speech comes in. Um, uh, dangerous speech is a framework that was developed, um, a phrase that was coined by, uh, Susan Benesh and the dangerous speech project. And, uh, it comes out of the atrocity prevention world. So this framework really looks specifically at the risk of speech leading to mass violence, things like genocide and mass atrocities. And it's really been tested and interrogated in this space, in the atrocity prevention space. We also see it, though, as really immensely valuable um, when looking at group targeted harm more broadly. So, uh, you know, things like systemic violence, discrimination, harmful policies toward marginalized groups, because many of the driving, you know, psychological and social mechanisms um, between those things are, are the same. It's, um, you know, what is the impact of, of speech that makes us be willing to treat another group badly based on their identity? Just to go into the dangerous speech framework a little bit, it, it looks at all the different elements of a piece of communication, and um, this is really, you know, the framework that that we that we use when looking at um, whether or not a speech a piece of speech is actually dangerous. So first, we look at the speaker: is the speaker influential? Second, we look at the medium or the channel um, that's being used to spread the message. So is the message being shared through a platform that reaches many people? Um, is it being spread through a platform people see as credible, through word of mouth? Um, third, we look at the message itself. So is the message tapping into existing fears or grievances or some other resonant experiences? Um, and does it, you know, does it show kind of the hallmarks of a lot of really particularly harmful rhetoric? Fourth, we look at the audience. So is the audience um, already primed to mobilize? Does the, does the audience have the capacity to commit violence? That's a really important part. Um, looking at power differentials, histories of harm. Um, is the audience that's, that's being spoken to, that's being mobilized, are they capable of, of committing harm, you know, on a large scale? And finally, we look at the broader context. Um, 
specifically histories of conflict and, and oppression and power differentials, as I've said. Um, so you need to analyze all these things together to go beyond saying this piece of communication is hateful to instead, you know, this piece of communication is dangerous and that it's likely to really mobilize people, mobilize people to commit violence, increase support for violence, increase support for discrimination, systemic violence, um, really what's it going to drive people to do? Mm-hmm. No, and you know, what comes to mind when you talk about that really just in the past six months, you know, obviously the Capitol um, and then all of these um, trans bands in sports, right? And so this language and rhetoric around students um, participating in sports. And so it's interesting to see, um, I think, kind of this dynamic of, of hate speech versus dangerous speech. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's you know really important for listeners to acknowledge and, and understand. So, so these types of speech patterns, they tend to create an us versus them, right, mentality, which is not only dangerous, as you mentioned, but it also just continues to divide people. So in our first season, we actually discussed the relationship between personal biases, like this in-group and out-group identification. So what do you find are some specific narrative patterns that target um, out-groups? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we, uh, there's, there's a framework developed by Jonathan Leader Maynard, who's a political scientist at Oxford University. Um, he's done a survey of propaganda narrative patterns before political violence and mass atrocities throughout history. Um, and the patterns he has identified, his framework, uh, provides a really useful jumping off point for analysis as to, you know, how identity-based violence other harms are justified across groups. So we we like to use his framework, again, as this jumping off point to talk about, you know, the different kinds of patterns um, we see and why they resonate. So in his work, he's identified three distinct, excuse me, but related themes in the messages that are spread about the, you know, the quote unquote them to justify, you know, discrimination, violence, other harms. Um, the first of these is um, collective blame, which is, which is the idea that an entire group of people is somehow guilty. Um, they're guilty of some sort of transgression, you know, whether that's hurting members of, you know, quote unquote, our in-group or some sort of moral transgression. They've broken some sort of moral code or moral law. And when, when we're talking about collective blame, it's, you know, these narratives, it, it doesn't matter whether this transgression was committed by a few members of the group or by, you know, by group leadership, or even if it's been entirely fabricated. The idea here is simply that being a part of this group or having this shared identity makes, makes someone guilty. You're guilty by association. And what this idea of shared guilt does is it, it shifts the boundaries of what's considered okay to do to a group. So if a group is guilty of a wrong, you know, within this mode of thinking, that it, it's not only okay, but may even be, you know, necessary or, or the moral or the right thing to do to punish them, to take, to take punitive action and strike out. Um, second, we see uh, what Jonathan labels threat construction, which is the idea that an entire group, you know, simply by existing, simply by, by being who they are, is a threat to, you know, our group. And, and this type of threat, the type of threat can be different, whether it's, you know, a threat to life or physical safety, to a way of life, to culture, money, power, you know, the list goes on and on. The threat can vary. The, the common thread here is that an entire group and all of its members are threats simply by existing. And what this pattern does is it sets up a case for self-defense. It creates this justification, you know, that is, as long as they exist, we are somehow unsafe. And we know that, you know, as people, we're really attuned to threat. It's baked in as a survival mechanism. It's baked into our kind of lizard brain. And we respond in this really knee-jerk way. So if it's a physical threat, we, we fight, we flee, we freeze. We feel fear that prompts us to one of those responses. Um, it, it kind of, you know, overtakes all of our other functions. Um, if, if the threat is a threat to resources, assets, power, 
we feel angry and we respond in kind. We lash out. Anger makes us lash out. If it's a threat to purity, you know, whether in a really literal sense, like a, a threat of disease, which we've seen a lot of narratives in the last year that have painted groups as, as a threat um, of disease or, or, you know, a threat of some sort of symbolic moral purity. Um, purity threats evoke a disgust response um, that make us want to distance ourselves from, you know, the, the quote-unquote disgusting thing. So we respond to threats in these unconscious, knee-jerk ways, um, which can even make us act in ways that aren't in accordance with our own values. They can, they can override our own moral values, our own codes, our own ethics, and threat is really powerful in that way. Third, um, within this framework, we see what Jonathan uh, labels de-identification, which is really, it's really two things. So. It's this idea that every member of a group is somehow the same. They're, they're essential. They are born with something in their essence that makes them bad, you know, makes them rotten from the start. And this essence is somehow, quote unquote, less than or different than, you know, the us. Um, and this often goes hand in hand with dehumanization. So comparisons to vermin, to disease, to insects. All things we register, again, on that visceral level as disgusting and threatening and, and that we need to stamp out. And, and like the other, you know, like the other patterns, this changes the moral grounds of engagement and it, that it, it makes it, you know, in this mode of thinking, somehow okay to do terrible things to these people because they aren't really, you know, they aren't really human like us anyway. They aren't really people anyway. Um, so with just a quick review of these themes, you can see how they're mutually reinforcing as well. So not only, it, you know, with it, within these patterns, you know, it, not only does the narrative go that, you know, not only is this group a threat to our group, they also committed this wrong against us. And beyond that, they aren't even human in the way that we are. And so you can see at their core, these narratives provide a sense of, of justification for doing awful things to other human beings while still kind of, you know, being the good guy in your own story. So they, they remove a sense of moral responsibility. It's just so interesting as you're talking and explaining all these things, I have this like picture of social media and posts and news headlines and things that we see all around us all the time. And I think it's so useful for our listeners to hear this so that they can start maybe being more conscious, right, of the messaging that's around them. We've talked in previous episodes about how we can just be such passive consumers of all of this information around us. And really, it's about educating ourselves about how there are these intentional tactics, really, right, in trying to create um, and other people. And then on the flip side of that, you know, there's also patterns that bolster this in-group identity and help create the justification for violence and harm. So can you describe some of those types of messaging um, that are commonly found for the us group? Yeah, um, and that's a really important point. This is really important. So it's often easy to focus on how groups are othered when we talk about us and them divides. Like it's really easy to focus on the messages about the them. But actually, the creation of a strong identification with an us and a mobilization of that us toward violence is essential as well. It's, it's a key piece of the puzzle. So if you're telling a story about how, how your group is the good guys and the other group is the bad guys, you need narratives not just about why they are bad, but also how and why we are good. So you need messages about the us. So, Similar to, to the messages about the them that we just talked about, these messages exist really primarily to remove any sense of culpability um, or agency or, or you know, uh, moral responsibility and instead paint committing violence, supporting harm um, as, as, as acceptable or, or necessary or sometimes even heroic. So the first, uh, you know, the first of these narratives, you know, within Jonathan's framework, um, again, is called destruction of alternatives, which basically, you know, is, is 
uh, academic for we have no choice. It's this idea of it's us or it's them and that violence hurting another group, striking out another, against another group is the only way for our group to stay safe, to stay prosperous, to stay pure, and so on. And this removes a sense of agency by saying, you know, I had to, it was them or me, it was self-defense. Um, and, and when we see this happening, it can become such a strong part of a group's collective mentality that the people who speak out against violence toward another group are painted as, as weak or naive or even traitorous and can be targeted themselves. And, you know, I, I think about um, one example that comes to mind thinking about this is uh, in Rwanda in the genocide in 1994, moderate Hutus were, were targeted by Hutu militias, um, you know, alongside Tutsis as, as Hutu extremists painted uh, moderate Hutus as traitors and, and you know, uh, argued that they needed to be wiped out as well. So we also see, you know, in terms of the, these patterns, we see a pattern uh, called valorization, which is the conflation of the willingness to be violent, to strike out against another group, um, to, to being a good and loyal group member. And, and this goes back to the message, you know, um, it, it, it goes, it speaks to a message about in-group love, right? It's, it's, it's saying, you know, I'm not bad. I just love my group so much that I, I need to protect them. Um, we see a lot of, of narratives about protecting women and children, um, protecting the, you know, the quote-unquote vulnerable members of a group with this. Um, pattern. And this, this is also often also tied to ideas of masculinity, what it means to be a good man, a good protector, and, and um, traits like bravery and courage are really applied to a willingness to be violent. Um, so, with, you know, with, when this pattern really starts to resonate, it, it makes violence not just acceptable, but really something to aspire to. It becomes you know, a badge of honor or a signal for how much you love your group. And uh, third, uh, again, within Jonathan's framework, he we see what he calls futurization. And futurization is interesting because it's a bit different than the other narrative patterns we've seen. Um, a lot of the other narrative patterns really have primarily to do with fear, right? Futurization has to do with hope and aspiration. Um, and these messages say, you know, our group could have this amazing future, you know, it, things could be perfect for us, but this other group is in the way. So there's these kind of utopian designs in these messages. We could have this incredible future in which we all have great jobs, our children can play safely, we can live without fear. And this type of messaging is actually very often employed by extremist groups from Daesh um, or the Islamic State to white nationalist groups in the U.S. Um, and hope and aspiration are incredibly powerful motivators and, and drivers of behavior, and they, they shouldn't be underestimated in terms of driving people toward violence or, or toward harm. And I'll just say, you know, quickly about looking at these patterns, you can see, again, how these messages can build off each other and be mutually reinforcing. So if we have, you know, it, quote, no other options than to commit violence against this group, to protect ourselves, to ensure a beautiful future, and committing violence uh, will prove that you're a good group member, you can see how all those things work together to create a really strong mobilizing mindset for violence. And you can also see how these messages um, about the us really interact with and reinforce messages about the them. So a group being painted as, as threatening, for instance, not only lays the groundwork for us to say, hey, it's us or them, it also means that we turn more inward. Um, if we're feeling threatened, we feel closer and more bonded to our own groups, which then increases how strongly we feel bound to these messages and these social pressures of what a good group member will do or should do, it really, it really turns up the, the pressure and increases the resonance of these messages about the us. It is, I think, as you were talking, really, you know, what resonated was just the sense of belonging 
and you know the language that we can use to either make people feel as if they belong or that if they don't do something they won't belong right um and when that's your entire world your community is your entire world like what are you going to do so you know very interesting that folks will really go against their values in defense of the group you know um it's it's just honestly it's very mind-blowing it's all self-evident but you know to hear it i'm like okay um so, you know, we've discussed in, in previous interviews really how damaging misinformation is and then how rapidly it spreads, obviously, with social media, you know, in, in our given time. Um, so, you know, you have a guide that actually explains the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Dis, dis um, so can you elaborate more on that for us? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll start by saying that, you know, myths and disinformation have always been a challenge for any society from from rumors spreading by word of mouth to propaganda pamphlets being printed and, and handed out. This is, this is not a new issue for humanity. And, um, you know, we've seen throughout history when new forms of communication, be it the printing press or, you know, the radio or cell phones emerge, they tend to become platforms for sharing and spreading misinformation at, at you know, new rates, uh, new speed, new, new breadth, and create new challenges that must be addressed. So as you said, myths and disinformation is now spreading faster and farther than ever um, with, you know, the widespread use of social media. And it's also able to spread in really emotionally resonant forums with pictures and videos and distinguishing um, between myths and disinformation um, and, and, and understanding the distinction between the two can be helpful as a, as a starting point, um, as, you know, an element of figuring out what action to take, both on a macro level and interpersonally. So misinformation is the spread of false information by people. You know, it can be individuals, groups, who believe that they're sharing something true or something that might be true, which, you know, I think is something that we've all done at one point or another, you know, participated in. Um, you know, this is everything from spreading relatively innocuous rumors about, say, a, a celebrity sighting to more serious things like, you know, a, an unfounded allegation of fraud by a public figure to really harmful rumors like baseless claims of voter fraud. Um, <laughs> You know, the thread here is that this information is being spread by people who believe it or, or may believe it, who think that, that, you know, this is or could be true. Disinformation, on the other hand, is intentionally misleading. So disinformation campaigns are carried out um, by people often or, you know, groups, often, often bad actors looking to sow confusion looking to sow mistrust, um, looking to, you know, uh, you know, create some sort of chaos in society. And sometimes even with the explicit aim to drive people toward violence or, or to support violence against different groups of people. And one, one thing I want to note when talking about mis and disinformation is that while it can be really damaging and is really damaging in so many areas of life, I think we've seen the damage it's done in terms of, in terms of public health, certainly. Um, mis and disinformation play a really specific role when we're looking at dangerous speech and, and calls for harming people based on their identity. So looking back at the patterns we just discussed, you know, um, all the different narrative patterns about the us, about the them, people need lies for those patterns. They need to spread information that isn't true to support the idea that an entire group of people is somehow rotten in their essence or guilty or deserving of harm. And that's what makes mis and disinformation so intertwined with dangerous speech and why individual pieces of mis and disinformation that may seem relatively small or inconsequential can, you know, in reality be quite problematic if they're feeding into these broader narratives about the the them being bad or threatening or, or, you know, whatever it may be. And again, this is something we've seen throughout history and, and across contexts, mis and disinformation, um, rumors, propaganda, they've consistently been used as part of dangerous speech to really fuel harms against, against targeted groups. Yeah. And so 
Let me ask you, once folks are able to start recognizing this difference between misinformation or disinformation and disinformation, how, how should they handle that? Like, how can they act on that? That's a great question. And, you know, I think this is something everyone is still grappling with. There's still, you know, this is researching mis and disinformation, especially in the, you know, in the internet age is still, you know, an emerging field and, and we're getting new insights all the time. But there are, you know, a few different ways to look at this. So I think there's actually a few different questions wrapped up in, in the question that you just posed. And so I think we can first talk about how to handle mis and disinformation on a more macro level. So society-wise, society-wide, you know, existentially and in terms of practical implications. And then how do we handle it in a more immediate interpersonal way? So... On a macro level, I, I think we can look at the content of, of the myths and disinformation that's that's spreading and parse apart why it's resonating. And, and we can do this to better understand the underlying dynamics of our own context. So prevalent threads, rumors, conspiracy theories can provide important insights for what people are looking for, what their grievances are, what underlying beliefs, attitudes, or fear might be. So for example, I think with the rise of, of, of QAnon, we might ask why these specific conspiracy theories are resonating and use that to create longer-term structural interventions. So, for instance, if this content is resonating with some audience, audience segments because they deeply distrust public institutions, we can ask about how we might rebuild trust in institutions among these disaffected populations where QAnon you know, is really spreading. And if, if mis and disinformation is, is that supports specific groups, um, the idea that specific groups pose an existential threat are spreading, how can we address the underlying belief systems, the broader social narratives that have enabled these stories to be relevant? So, you know, as practitioners, as people who work on creating healthier communication ecosystems, we can look past the surface of the misinformation the conspiracy theory, the rumor, whatever it may be, and ask ourselves, why is this resonating? And then work to, un to address those underlying dynamics. Um, also speaking on a macro level in terms of addressing myths and disinformation um, on, a, on a more tactical, logistical level, there, you know, there's many different angles from, from which to approach this that is largely in the hands of different decision makers and policy makers and one thing that I will note is that an understanding of the intentions behind the people sharing the false information should be taken into account in terms of solutions. So as we've discussed, for instance, someone sharing something false on Facebook in good faith is going to require a different intervention approach, um, a different mechanism than, say, a public official knowingly spreading conspiracy theories. On an interpersonal level, um, for each of us, you know, as we navigate the world and are either trying to correct pieces of misinformation, get other people to question information we know is objectively false, there are a few important things to know. And the first is that misinformation is really sticky, meaning the more we hear something, the more likely we are to believe it. Our brains are just built that way. The associations stick. Second, we know that... Um, a lot of intuitive approaches to correcting misinformation can, can really be ineffective or actually even backfire. So if someone really believes a piece of misinformation and the broader narrative it's supporting and, and it's central to their worldview, just telling them they're wrong and, and challenging them by flooding them with facts is, is typically pretty ineffective and can even backfire and make people hold on even tighter to an incorrect belief because they feel their worldview is under attack. And you know, this is because when our beliefs, when our worldviews are challenged, our brains can perceive it and process it in the same way as a threat, making us shut down and go into defensive mode. Um, so with pieces of misinformation that have to do with contentious issues or issues that are really emotional for people, issues that they hold close to their sense of self or, or that are important for a group they're part of, this can be especially true. So we need to find ways to reach people without triggering this type of defensive threat reaction. Ways that we can help them be open to start considering new correct information and ways to make the correct information stick. So what can we do individually? What are some 
what are some tools? You know, um, if offering a simple correction, um, so, you know, say you're issuing a public statement as an organization or, you know, you're correcting something as an individual, there's a few best practices that can diffuse the stickiness that, that um, I just talked about of the misinformation. So first is, you know, if possible, avoid repeating the misinformation itself. Second, use positive framing. So instead of saying, John isn't a thief, say, John is incredibly honest and trustworthy and respects other people's property. And third, if you can give um, an alternative explanation for the piece of misinformation in question, do. People really like to have answers for things. People don't like uncertainty. And finally, you can prompt people to question the source of the misinformation, again, as long as that won't put them in a defensive mode. So get them to engage thoughtfully with the piece of misinformation without telling them that their favorite, you know, pundit is wrong and, and out to get them in a spreader of conspiracy theories, which probably is, again, going to put them in that defensive position, right? So thinking long-term, interpersonally, on an individual level, if you say, if you have a friend or a family member who seems to be believing or, or sharing a lot of misinformation, you can, you know, and, and this, this is if you have the capacity and the desire to do so, apply some of the macro level existential questions um, that I just mentioned um, to this person, to this relationship. So what is what about the misinformation is resonating with or appealing to this person? Is this person feeling lonely or scared or angry? Um, are you in a position to speak to or help address some of those underlying attitudes or emotions? And again, that's, that's if you have the capacity, if you have the desire, if it's safe for you to do so. If it seems to be, if this is happening and it seems to be more of a media literacy issue, um, can you somehow model thoughtful consumption of information. For example, can you share an anecdote, share a story about how you saw an outrageous claim on Facebook or Twitter and clicked on the profile of the person only to discover it was a troll or a bot, you know, um, have some sort of personal anecdote like that. Also shedding light on how information ecosystems are structured, um, as well as, you know, like uh, telling people, educating people about how, you know, algorithms are being structured to really silo people into different information streams can help people understand that just because they're seeing something frequently doesn't mean it's true. Um, Dr. Whitney Phillips, who, who's great, uh, she does research out of Syracuse University, is, is doing a lot of really interesting work about what the effects of, of pulling back sort of the, you know, the proverbial curtain on online and offline media strategies are for getting people to engage with information more critically. Um, you know, when, when you're doing any of these things, when you're engaging with someone who's sharing mis and disinformation, um, or misinformation, probably not some, someone who's sharing disinfo disinformation, someone behind a, a disinformation campaign is probably going to require quite different strategies, as I just said, but someone who's sharing misinformation Engaging with empathy, sharing your own stories, you know, uh, your own lessons about consuming media rather than shaming someone um, is, is probably going to be a lot more effective. Yeah, so it just sounds like we're up against a lot <laughs> with this topic. You know, the, all the messaging with the in-group and, you know, the us versus them, in-group, out-group, um, which really just plays a lot into people's biases and plays on just systems that we have in these societies too that like you said way in the beginning we've never really reconciled the histories of like all of this interacts um and then this misinformation and disinformation that is just so hard to sometimes figure out i mean even for us like miranda and i when we're researching stuff we go to throw something up on a post and it's like you know, sometimes you have to think twice and really research and who's actually doing that in their everyday lives, seeing things and actually checking sources and seeing if this is true. Um, so we're just seemingly up against a lot. And then on top of that, people feel like they have the right to say certain things, you know, and they want to use the defense of freedom of speech uh, as their First Amendment right. And, you know, while 
we hear the term like fighting words and true threats are generally found to be in violation of the First Amendment, hate speech and offensive speech are usually and unfortunately protected. So what are the implications of this, especially for marginalized groups? Uh, and how can we kind of address some of that? That's that's a really good question and a really tricky question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, books upon books upon books have been written about this very issue. So I, I will not and would not ever claim to have any sort of definitive answers about freedom of speech versus hate speech versus dangerous speech. But, you know, this is something we think about a lot. So I guess I'll share some of the important questions that I ask myself, um, the things that we consider when when grappling with this question or the, uh, grappling with these, these questions. So first, when we're looking at regulating speech, are we talking about government regulations or are we talking about private companies' moderation policies? The two often get lumped in together, but are really two separate questions. So one is about whether or not the state has the right to censor you. The other is if private companies like social media platforms, right, have a duty to have responsible moderation policies and, and algorithms that don't lead people to harmful content. And then also when we're talking about freedom of speech, are we talking about freedom from all types of accountability or are we talking about, you know, just freedom from prosecution? So on the first topic, you know, government-based censorship is, again, a really, really complicated topic um, with, with countless implications. And, and one thing to consider is if censorship laws are passed under one administration, for instance, and then the following administration has a widespread policy of targeting activists or political opposition, can they then use those laws and policies to actually fuel harms toward marginalized or targeted groups? You know, we've seen around the world, uh, we've, we've seen journalists and political dissidents be targeted by laws that on paper are supposed to protect people from harmful speech. We've seen those laws weaponized. A second thing to consider is that government censorship often feeds into martyrdom narratives that, that violent actors really thrive on. And they can point to being you know, prosecuted and censored and say, see, I'm willing to suffer for my commitment to this cause. They're locking me up because I'm telling the truth. Um, that they can also use some of their, you know, some of the sort of in-group love um, narratives that we talked about. Like, I love you all. I carry it for you all so much that I'm willing to tell the truth and get locked up because, you know, I, that's how much I care about my group. Um, in the same vein, it can also drive conversations further underground and strengthen, strengthen the resolve of people who believe these messages um, and, and can strengthen their resolve to hold on to them even tighter. So their beliefs may become more radical even as echo chambers become somewhat, you know, clandestine and isolated. And third, outlawing dangerous speech, you know, does little to change the underlying dynamics. As we've discussed, dangerous speech is dangerous in the first place because it taps into existing fault lines in a different context. With censorship, you're playing a game of whack-a-mole. You're putting band-aids on instances of dangerous speech um, while the underlying conditions, grievances, anger, fear, distrust remain unchanged. And again, this is complex and, and is not something that I would claim to have a any sort of definitive answer to. These are just points to consider when, when grappling with this question. Thinking about private companies and their responsibilities, though, those are different questions. Um, what is the responsibility of private companies to participate in building a healthy society? What, at least as a baseline, is the responsibility of private companies such as social media platforms, you know, not, not to aid violent aid actors in organizing um, and, and spreading their messaging. And I think this is largely a norms-based question. Um, you know, what as we as the public, what are we willing to accept or demand? Um, you know, as consumers, as, as voters, as, you know, residents of this country, how can we pressure companies to put responsible boundaries around how they're hosting content, um, how they're disseminating content, what kind of messages they're spreading, how they're engaging with mis and disinformation. And, 
you know, while we may have a right to stand on the corner and say whatever we want, um, private companies have no obligation to allow that on their platforms. And, and some research has shown, you know, the deplatforming, so removing people spreading dangerous speech from their various platforms can be an effective strategy in diffusing calls for harm and related rhetoric, you know, especially if people are deplatformed across platforms. And finally, you know, thinking about this question, when we're talking about censorship, when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, you know, regulating this kind of speech, there seems to be this narrative out there that that accountability in any form is censorship. Um, <laughs> you know, so we've already talked at length about the different ways communication and speech can be dangerous. And if someone is calling for violence against a group of people, you know, thinking beyond the legal framework, this person should be held accountable. Um, particularly if they're in a public position, if they're in a position of power or if they're an elected official, you know, freedom of speech does not mean freedom from any consequences, um, be that criticism, loss of financial support, loss of political support, etc. And, you know, again, referring back to norms, we can think about as a public, how can we push for accountability for people who, you know, who are using speech toward dangerous and, and harmful ends? And, Obviously, it's easy to, to speak in the theoretical when it comes to these questions, but I, I want to go back to your point about the impact on people, particularly the people being targeted, the, the groups being targeted by hateful and dangerous speech. We know that encountering hate speech has negative impacts on individuals, on individuals exposed to it. You know, it's a, it's a poison. As far as dangerous speech, we, we have seen the, the emotional, the structural, the economic harms, and the physical violence that come as a result, you know, in this country and around the world. These things are very real and they have real impact on people's lives. So what do we do about that? And this, again, I just want to come back to the importance of accountability and holding people accountable for spreading hateful and dangerous messages, you know, not only will hopefully shift their behavior, but will also, you know, build and, and strengthen a social norm that you don't get to say and do these things without consequence. And uh, social norms, I, 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 as you know, you, you mentioned earlier, are incredibly strong drivers of behavior. And research is showing more and more that they're perhaps the strongest drivers of human behavior is, is what we think our group will accept. So this brings me to, you know, a, a broader point about solutions, which is, that to diffuse the impact of dangerous speech, we need to work to transform the underlying dynamics of our own context. Um, and we can use communications to transform what dangerous speech is tapping into in the first place. This means shifting norms, as I've mentioned. This means, you know, building a broader we, redefining the us, defining, you know, redefining what our values are and, and calling on people to live into them. This means articulating a hope for, you know, a just, equitable, peaceful future that people can work toward. And in, in the same way that, that dangerous speech um, can mobilize people or, toward violence, you know, using communication to shape norms, change frames of who people see as the us or the we can, can transform underlying dynamics to create a society where where groups who have been or, or are being marginalized are safe and are no longer being targeted by dangerous speech because the dangerous messages have had their power taken out of them. They've been diffused, right? And I think just thinking of being in the state of Florida and that every <laughs> this like scary it. state <laughs> of Florida. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and even just thinking of everything happening with DeSantis right now, like trying to sign this bill or signing the bill, barring social media companies from being able to block political candidates. And, you know, it's it comes on the heels, right, of Trump being deplatformed from Facebook and Twitter and, and all of this. And like you said, it's just kind of meshing together the private and the government. And I think we're starting to have these really muddied waters where we're not really having, um, 
I don't know, like a, like clear guidance, you know, in terms of what is responsible and what is accountability. And it just winds up being about what people's motives are, like p the political motives and the financial gain of these social media companies. And that's like a whole other episode we probably yeah. could talk about. <laughs> yeah. But I just think we have it going on right now in Florida. When I think in addition to what you said, then that's on the heels of the anti-protest bill, right? Right. And so there's this us versus them. And, you know, Sam, you kind of talk about how, what are we willing to accept? And like, really, you know, protesting is a, f a form of going against the things that we're not willing to accept, you know? Mm -hmm. And here we are being told that we can't, right? So it's, it's, it's an interesting and scary place to be in, quite honestly, you know? Um, I think, you know, honestly, you've shared so much valuable information today. I, I super appreciate, you know, everything that you brought to, to our attention. Um, while I always remain hopeful <laughs> and we get to celebrate <laughs> our wins, right? We still definitely have a long way to go. You know, I, I think back everything that you said, right? I think back to slavery, the Holocaust, like all of these, this messaging that's happened over the course of US history, taking land, you know, we've stolen land from people, right? Like all based off of this messaging, right? Um, so, so how would you reimagine media? And this is, you know, maybe a very large question, but in its simplest form, how would you reimagine media messaging so that organizations and communities are building an inclusive we rather than fueling this divide that we continue to see? Yeah. And, you know, this is obviously what I think about all day, every day. Um, <laughs> this is, this is the question that's constantly on my mind yeah. and, you know, as you, as you've said, it feels like we're up against so much and it can be, it can feel really hard not mm -hmm. to be totally discouraged, but, um, framing is an interesting thing. And, um, I want to start with, a, I want to start with a non-conflict related example, um, to, just to, to show, I guess, how kind of malleable people's minds are, um, and, and how powerful framing can be and how much power we have when we frame things. So just come down this rabbit hole with me for a second and I promise I'll bring it back to answer your question. <laughs> so I want to talk briefly about jaywalking. Um, so when cars, um, I think this is such a fascinating case study. When, when cars were becoming more and more prevalent in the 1920s, you know, streets then were public spaces. Um, and you know, there was this new machine infrastructure wasn't necessarily designed for it. And there were predictably a lot of deaths. A lot of people were hit by cars. Um, automakers, you know, were aware of the bad publicity they were getting. There were even, you know, political cartoons with cars drawn as the Grim Reaper. Um, and, and uh, they, automakers saw that the, the public was, was turning on automobiles and decided that they needed to shift the frame. Um, they, needed, they needed to do something about the way people understood these accidents. So if someone got hit by a car, they decided, it was no longer going to be the driver's fault. It was going to be the pedestrian's fault. And they came up with the term jaywalking, um, which is named after a slang mm -hmm a slang word of the time of the twenties of, of a J, um, which means someone who's kind of bumbling, kind of careless, doesn't really know what they're doing. And the auto industry undertook a huge national campaign with, with posters, with press releases, following audio auto accidents that framed the pedestrians as at fault, um, pedestrian safety training programs, and a whole host of, of city ordinances and local laws that created fines for jaywalking. Um, and within the span of a decade, jaywalking was recognized as a public nuisance. Um, you know, with people crossing the street being seen as doing so at hazard to themselves and the city's drivers. Um, and I share this example because I think it's so powerful about how the way we frame things really takes root in how we understand problems and solutions, right? Who is responsible? Um, you know, how many times are you driving now or you're on a bike and you think, look at that person jaywalking, that's so dangerous. Um, or, you know, how many times are, are, are you jaywalking? You're crossing the street and you're- I was you just gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> 
it just happened. We had an argument about it like two weeks ago. They're like, if you get hit, you won't get any insurance money. Like, Gotta stay in the crosswalk. Gotta stay in the crosswalk. Yeah. See, it's like it it has totally it has just totally like informed the way everybody sees this one, you know, this one aspect of life. So the solution in the 1920s could have easily been something along the lines of how do we make automobiles safe for our streets or how can we, you know, make everyone use our streets safely? How can we keep this a public space and, and you know, make it work for everyone? But instead, there's these made-up categories that create groups of people and responsibility and culpability that still stand today. And they were completely, completely made up. Um, my point with this is that, I mean, this I find to be a upsetting example, um, <laughs> but, uh, but also, you know, strangely inspiring in that it shows that we have the power to challenge existing frames. We have the power to change the, to challenge existing frames and the existing boxes that people are put into. So, you know, we, we can shift language, we can, we can change frames and, and, um, you know, people will catch on, communities will catch on, society will catch on. So what this looks like in terms of conflict, in terms of identity-based violence, in terms of group targeting is speaking to people's many different identities, especially unifying identities, you know, such as being residents of a town or, you know, um, or cross-cutting identities such as, um, you know, being a parent or a, a caregiver can start to loosen some of the, the current frames we're operating in that veer into zero-sum thinking. And, um, you know, geographic-based identities can have particularly strong resonance. So can you talk to residents of a town about a shared value, for instance? You know, everyone wants to see that schools are safe and happy and fruitful places for children. And how can you use that shared value and shared town identity to begin work toward common goals? And this isn't, you know, this isn't about getting people to give up their identities. It's about making stronger points of connection, new points of connection, um, that ultimately make our, our broader social fabric, social fabric more tightly woven. Um, and, and it's about getting people to connect along different lines. And that can also reduce some of the, you know, when people have different identity groups to turn to, it can also reduce the social pressure to go along with you know, really harmful narratives to go along with harmful action if if they understand that this identity group isn't their only option. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, like Miranda said, you just shared so much great information. And like I said in the beginning, I think it's just really timely for where we are um, in our episodes because it just brought context to so much we've spoken about and kind of really brings a lot of meaning to understanding some of our previous topics um, and just the role social media is playing now and just messaging in general, not even necessarily just on social media, but news outlets and articles we read, um, even trusted sources now, you're like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for coming on. It's so psychological that I feel like totally geeked up. I'm like sitting here. <laughs> like, like, one of my yeah. old lectures, like it's just so interesting. Um, and I think it can go either way, right? Like these shifting the frames, we can be responsible with it or we can be really harmful with it. And hopefully we get to a space as a society where we're being really responsible so that all of us are safe and we talk about inclusion and, and equity where we're just working towards that version of society that we're hoping for. So thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Um, listeners, stay tuned. We're going to have a lot of resources posted um, related to this episode and even some 
activities where we'll be going through different headlines and, and media outlets and just trying to help build more media literacy and use some of this problem solving to just really kind of dig through all the information that we're inundated with on a daily basis. So thanks for coming on today, Sam. Bye. Bye. Show the Unpack Project some love and be sure to like, subscribe, and review our podcast. You can also check us out on Instagram at the underscore Unpack Project. And if you enjoyed today's episode, visit our website at theunpackedproject.com where you can make a donation that supports the research, production, and operating costs of this work. Shout out to all of our listeners who unpacked with us today. See you next week. Peace. <laughs>